The sermon text is from Joshua 22, verses 1 through 6, and then from verses 10 through 12, and you can find it on page 112 in the paper Bibles. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given you rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away and they went to their tents. And when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of, the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the other side that belongs to the people of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Now when we come to our passage this morning, there is tension in the air. The people of God are on the verge of war. And if you've been following our passage, if you've been following with us in our series, you may be a bit perplexed by that. Because in just the last sermon, in just the last chapter, at the end we read this. Thus the Lord gave to Israel, Israel all the land that he swore to give their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Now God drove out the enemies. God gave the land. God provided rest. God proved himself faithful. And it would have been the perfect place for us to pull down the curtain, to turn up the music, and to bring up the credits. But that's not how the story ends. And in a way, I'm grateful for that because for most of us, that's not where we live. For most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, that sense of rest and peace is an experience that often eludes us. Instead, we find ourselves warring within. We war within ourselves. We question our own decisions. We question whether or not we have what it takes to get up in the morning, to get up out of bed, and to get through the day. We find that we are people who are at war with each other. We are often misunderstood or we're at odds with those who we consider to be our greatest allies. We feel abandoned, betrayed, isolated. 
That is where the people of God find themselves this morning in Joshua 22. And despite God's provision of care, despite His provision of rest and peace, like them, we too find ourselves warring with, from within and warring with others. But I'm convinced that the gospel is good. And I'm convinced that wherever we are, God does not want to leave us there. But God longs for us to become a people to experience peace. So this morning, I want to propose this question today. The main question I want to propose is this. How do we become a community of peace? How do we become a community of peace? First, we need to collectively pursue holiness. We need to collectively pursue holiness. Now, how do we get to this place where the people of God are so quickly on the brink of a civil war, where they're ready to destroy each other? Now, let's rewind the tape and see how we got here, shall we? Let's rewind the tape. Two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh, they request to Moses, when he was still alive, to be able to settle on the west side, on the east side of the Jordan. Moses, we want to settle on the east side of the Jordan. We're farmers. The land is suitable there. Let us stay there. And Moses says, that's agreeable to me under one condition, that before you settle down, that you first fight with the rest of your brothers to drive out the rest of God's enemies, to drive out the rest of the enemies, and to win the land in Canaan, the land that God promised them. And they do so. They leave their wives and their children, and they fight alongside their brothers. And for, after seven long years, after seven years of warfare, finally, alas, they're allowed to go home. And so in the beginning of Joshua 22, we find that Joshua summons these two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh. He brings them together, and he gives them his farewell speech. He starts off by commending them for their faithfulness. You fought well. You stuck with us. You kept your promise. Well done. Thank you. And then he, before he sends them off, he gives them a heartfelt warning. Verse 5. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. To love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Now, much like a parent sending off their firstborn to college, Joshua gives his first, Joshua gives his heartfelt warning. Stay close. Stay close to the heart of God. Stay close. Follow him wholeheartedly, with passion. Love him with every fiber of your being, with all your heart and with all your soul. And yet, it isn't long, it doesn't take too much time before the people of God hear word that these tribes, these tribes in the east, have built an altar, an altar at the edge of the Jordan River. Now, the assumption of another altar is that there is some sort of syncretism, some contamination of worship going on. The assumption of another altar is that these brothers whom they love 
have fallen into idolatry. Now imagine the emotion. Imagine the anguish, the heartbreak of the thought that these brothers with whom you fought seven years in battle have so quickly gone astray. Imagine the anxiety in trying to decide the right course of action. Without a doubt, these guys were hoping against the worst case scenario of having to declare war against their own kin. But what was at stake was the holiness of God and the reputation of His great name. What was at stake was the peace and purity of the entire congregation. And so what they do is they form a committee. And they delegate a leader of this committee named Phineas, a man from the tribe of Levi. And Phineas was the high priest. And they gather this committee, and they decide, well, we've got to go talk to them. And so they cross the Jordan to call them out of rebellion and into repentance. And they say this in verse 16. Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, what is this breach of faith that you have committed against God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Do not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things, and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel, and he did not perish alone for his iniquity. Now, Phinehas provides two examples from recent history, two memorable, impressionable events that Phinehas experienced firsthand. And these events would have led him to the conclusion that the right thing to do, undoubtedly, was to confront idolatry. And so he gives them these two examples. He says, consider the fiasco at Peor. Don't you remember that? Don't you remember what happened at Peor? For it was at Peor that the idolatry, the blatant idolatry of a few, brought about a plague on the entire congregation. And over 24,000 lost their lives. And then he says, consider the sin of Achan. If you remember, Achan was from Joshua 7, and in that story we find that the rebellion of one resulted in the death and suffering of the many. And what we gather from these two accounts is that our rebellion against God is never merely a personal me and Jesus issue. 
that our rebellion against God is just not my personal thing. And no, that's in our culture, that's hard for us to hear because if we, the moment we disagree on something or anything, I don't like this, I don't like that, it's like, dude, you, you are not a tolerant person. But it is really the business of the entire congregation. I remember when Kendra and I were first married, I mean, I don't watch a bunch of TV, but we used to watch uh, Intervention occasionally when it was on and there was nothing better to watch. And intervention is, an, uh, is a, I guess, a documentary about people who are intervening when someone who is self-destructing, that someone needs intervention because he is destroying himself by alcohol or drug abuse. And these guys care so much to gather together to confront and say, enough, enough is enough. I am not going to let you kill yourself. I am not going to let you face jail time. I'm not going to let you drink and, and drive intoxicated. I am not going to let you destroy yourself. And we are putting our foot down. And why do they do this? Because they care. Now what about us? Do we know people who are destroying themselves? Is there somebody that comes to mind? Is there someone we know who's destroying himself. And it's so easy for us as a people to just stay passive and to stay silent because no one likes an uncomfortable conversation. No one likes to be a prude. And I think one of the reasons why we find it so difficult to pursue holiness in others is because we don't feel like we really have holiness in ourselves and no one likes to feel like a hypocrite. But what is the cost if we stay silent? What is the cost if we stay silent? What could be the impact if we chose to engage with strength and love? James 5, 19 tells us this. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now the people in the West crossed over the river to call them out of rebellion and into repentance. And they cared enough to cross the river. And if we're going to become a community of peace, we must do the same. We must intentionally, collectively, pursue holiness. How do we become a community of peace? First, we need to collectively pursue holiness. Second, we need to collectively pursue unity. We need to collectively pursue unity. Now, when the Western tribes cross the Jordan, they are not acting like moral policemen representing the chief of moral police. Their posture is not that of a holier-than-thou Bible-thumper who's ready to pounce and whose end game is to, to beat the other person up. That's not their posture at all. Their posture is that of a costly love. A costly love. They say, if living on the east side of the river, if living on the other side segregated from us is just too much for you, and it's causing you to rebel. 
Like, come back to us. Come back to us. We'll make room for you. All million of you. We'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll come, come back to us. Live with us. Only do not rebel. Come live with us. We'll figure it out and we'll make it work. The people were willing to inconvenience themselves. Now, I don't know if you have guests over, but if you ever really have someone sleeping over for an extended period of time, you know that's hard. I mean, this is like our turf, our land. It's like, come live with us. We'll make room for you. Just only don't rebel. And that's sacrificial. That's costly love. That's an inconvenience. But sometimes that's the cost for unity. Now, what I perhaps think is the most crazy twist of events or the the twist and turn of the story is when we realize that the the very thing, the very idolatry that the western tribes suspected of their eastern brothers of the east was actually unfounded. The altar was not an act of rebellion, but was actually an, an act of faithfulness. That it was an actual attempt to pursue unity. Verse 21. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, The Mighty One, God the Lord. The Mighty One, God the Lord. He knows. And let Israel itself know, if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from the following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord Himself take vengeance. No. But He did it from fear that in time to come, your children may, might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you. You people of Reuben and people of Gad, you have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in His presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought, if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, Behold the copy of the altar of the Lord which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before His tabernacle. Now, one of the most striking things about the response of the East is what they don't say. They don't say, how dare you falsely accuse me? How dare you think the worst of me? I mean, they have a desire to explain their motives and their intentions, but you don't see this defensiveness. You don't see anger. In fact, they built the altar on the assumption that they themselves were naturally inclined, that they had a gravitational pull to drift away. And so they say, no, the altar 
is not an act of rebellion. But we don't put it past ourselves. That we are capable of the very things that you say that we are able to do and that you're, you thought we were doing. We're very capable of that. In fact, we built this altar because we were afraid. We built this, built this altar because we're afraid. We built this altar because of this great Jordan River, that it would be a hindrance, that it would be a deterrent to our unity with the one true God and with his people. In other words, they were afraid of being cut off. Now, what is it about the Great Jordan River that caused so much anxiety of being cut off? Now, in our day and age, in our bridge culture, we don't really quite understand the stress of, you know, a body of water. You know, how a body of water can separate communities. I mean, whenever I go to East Boston or to and fro East Boston, what do I do? I just pay a toll, get on a bridge or go under the tunnel and through and come in and out and back and boom. (laughs) But in the ancient culture, a body of water, to cross a body of water would have been extremely overbearing. It would have been strenuous, if not perilous. Now, have any of you guys played Oregon Trail? Come on, Evan. Uh, I'm looking for my Oregon Trail generation people. All right, if you've ever played Oregon Trail, then you know that you're trying to get to Oregon City, right? And if, the, if you've ever made it to the end game, then you know that you have the option to ford the river. But if you, if you choose that option to ford a river, I mean, what's the most likely scenario? You're going to hit a rock. You're going you're to lose an ox. You're going to break a wheel. You're going to lose a loved one. I mean, the, even the creators of Oregon Trail knew that crossing a body of water was perilous, even in the 1800s. Now, one historian called the Jordan River a colossal ditch. A colossal ditch. In the words of George Adam Smith, no other part of our earth uncovered by water sinks to 300 feet below the level of the ocean. He goes on to say, a river nearly 100 miles long, the size of two great lakes. Now, we all have our Jordans, don't we? We all have our Jordans. We all have those barriers that deter us from community. We all have those barriers that deter us from community. I mean, for some of us, it might be geographical. I mean, you know, this morning some of us came to church in a T. Some of us rode an Uber. We come from different neighborhoods, from Dudley Square, Hyde Square, from Forest Hills. You know, some of us even came from Brookline or Roslindale or, or Southie. And we all come from different neighborhoods, and even JP and Roxbury just have such different vibes. And to leave one's neighborhood into another feels so burdensome. It feels so maybe unnecessary, but it's an ordeal sometimes. I mean, Kendra and I talk about how surprised we are. I mean, there's so many cool things to do in Boston, right? But it's like, we, we find it surprising how we just don't want to leave our own little neighborhood because it's just extra work, it's an inconvenience. 
And the reality is that we have this geographical barrier. We have these barriers that deter us from community. Some of us, for, for us, it's geographical. Others of us, it's all the stresses in life. You know, all the stresses in life that pile up, that compete for a limited supply of time, energy, and resources. Some of us are new parents. We started new jobs. We're in school. Just by virtue of living in the city of Boston, I mean, it, it's expensive. And it, especially if you've you got a family, it just it gives us added pressure of having to make more, work longer hours to make ends meet, to, uh, to be able to provide, to be able to live in a city with a higher cost of living. And just that added weight is just another deterrent. It's just another challenge to just have anything left over at the end of the day. Stresses in life. Geographical stresses in life. And for some of us, barriers are all the differences between us. All the differences between us. I mean, we got different lifestyles, different stories, different backgrounds, different interests. We may be of different race, gender, sexuality, and, and dare I say, political parties. And we naturally are so fragmented of a people. We're naturally fragmented, and, and to move towards another is just an upward climb. I like what D.A. Carson says. He says this, Ideally, the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation, but because they have been saved by Jesus Christ and owe Him a common allegiance. In the light of this common allegiance, in light of the fact that they have all been loved by Jesus Himself, they commit themselves to doing what He says, and He commands them to love one another. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Have you thought of church in that way? That we are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake? Now what D.A. Carson is saying that the church, by nature of what it is, will require, it will uh, consist of people who, who need to cross barriers. If the church is what it is, if it's a, just a natural band of enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake, because of the nature of what it is, we need to be people who cross barriers. The Eastern tribes, by building an altar, were attempting to do that very thing. The altar was not a, an altar for sacrifice or for worship. The altar was to be a witness in fact, it was made just like the other one. It was a replica. It was a copy of the one at Shiloh where the tabernacle of the Lord and God's presence dwelt. And our text tells us it was huge. Our language says it was of imposing size. This altar was of imposing size, meaning it could be seen from far, far away. And it had to be because this altar was actually built on the west side of 
of the river. Our text tells us it, it stood on the side where the, it, it, was, it was on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. Meaning, in order to get to it, you would have to cross the river. This large, massive, perilous body of water. And it stood there as a perpetual reminder that they could not settle for local deities. They could not settle for convenience. They were perpetually reminded by looking at that altar that they would have to pursue unity. And they cared enough to cross the river. And if we're going to be a people, a community of peace, we're going to need to do the same. We need to collectively pursue unity. We need to collectively pursue holiness. We need to collectively pursue unity. Holiness, unity, got it. Pretty simple, except we all know it's not. <laughs> and I find it fascinating that with so much brevity given to so many of these battles in the book of Joshua, that 34 verses are carved out and dedicated to a war that never takes place. And I find it most fascinating how this story ends. And it doesn't end with a river, but it ends with an altar. Verse 30, when Phinehas, the priest, and chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who are with him, heard the words of the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst, because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and the chiefs, returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad in the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the people of Israel, and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad was settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness, for they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. The people put their weapons down, and the response is worship. And they bless God. Why? Because now they understood that God was really in their midst. How so? Because they were not destroyed. Phinehas, the high priest, recalling the altar of witness, says this at the end of verse 31. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. You have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Now that phrase, hand of the Lord, refers is a phrase that describes God's judgment. And what Phinehas is essentially saying is that the proof of God's presence is that he has protected us from his own judgment. The proof of God's presence is that he has protected us from his own judgment. The altar of witness, all it could do was point. And it pointed not merely to the altar at Shiloh, but it pointed to the one true altar where God himself 
would have to cross an enormous chasm. And it, to do so, to protect us from his own judgment. And the only way to shield us would be to offer up himself on an altar of a cross. And our Lord Jesus, there, he became our sin offering to become sin for us. Our guilt offering to make us clean. Our burnt offering to be consumed. Our meal offering to sustain us. Our peace offering to welcome us to his table. In just a few moments, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. I love it. And this meal, is, it was never meant to be done in the privacy of our home. Its design is to be done corporately with a people. We're invites the entire congregation. And the loaf, by design, there is one bread. There is one loaf. Because we who are many become one body because there is one loaf. The Lord Jesus on the, on the night he was betrayed, he shared this meal. And at this table were Simon the Zealot, a nationalist who hated all things Roman. And at the same table, you have Matthew, the tax collector, who sold out and worked for Rome. And yet, on Jesus' last night, brought together at the same table are Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector, eating of the one bread and drinking from the same cup, as if to say, whereas nothing else could, Christ has. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would woo us into your heart. That you would give us a glimpse of your steadfast love for us, your deep affection for your people, that we would be overwhelmed in all and we would respond in worship. I ask for a seeker friend, a skeptic friend here who may be wondering, is this true? Is this good? I ask that you would help them and see that it really is and give them the faith to believe and to respond. Give us faith. We need you. We need you to sustain us. We need you to give us life. We need you to transform us a people and only your gospel can do it. Only your Holy Spirit's presence can do it. And I ask that you would show that you are with us in our midst today. As we get ready for communion, we ask that you make it sweet. Show us Jesus. Uh, we'll make it palpable, your love for us. And as we sing and respond in praise and worship, we ask that you would fill our hearts, that our praise would not be fabricated, but it would be in deep love and affection for you because you first loved us. And I pray that as we go out in this world and through our, to our jobs, to our families, that you would give us the grace to love well, to engage well, to speak truth in love well, and that you would be with us, empower us, for we are too weak and fragile of a people. Without your grace, we would destroy ourselves. We would destroy each other. 
And so, Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit's grace would be poured out onto us like the Niagara Falls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.